This is the third in a series of talks by Joel on devotional practices, titled Devotion 3, Purifying the Heart, recorded October 18, 2005, at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. Mirabai was one of the greatest of the Hindu bhaktis. And she was a devotee of Krishna, who also has other names. Uh, among them are Gopal and Hari, which are important for what I'm going to read you. And here's one of her songs. You cannot call this true devotion to bathe one's forehead and apply tilak without cleansing the impurities of the heart. That cruel cur desire has bound me with the cord of greed. The butcher anger remains within me. How can I hope to meet Gopal, weakened by my hunger for sense objects? I worship not God, but myself, and glow with ecstasy. The name Hari does not enter my heart, though I tell with my lips the beads of my bejeweled rosary. Learn to love the compassionate Lord. Give up faith in the world. So, first thing she's saying, of course, is that the outward rituals uh, are meaningless if something isn't going on internally. And when we start to dive into our emotional hearts, especially if they have been a little hardened, especially if we've closed them down because of past pain and so forth we've suffered, when that starts to open up, it's not just the love and the longing that comes out. Other things may start to come out as well. Other emotions, so-called negative emotions, so we may be uh, doing practice and, you know, suddenly uh, anger comes up, something that happened to you maybe long ago when you were a child, it's just uh, sadness, envy, uh, greed, all the things she mentioned. So these are what have to be purified from the emotional heart if we're to dive deeper, if we're to go beyond. They are what supply the fuel that drives the story of I. Just like a movie. You know, there are characters and there's a plot, but what drives it all are the emotions that these people are feeling, and that's what sucks you into the movie. If the movie doesn't arouse your emotions, you won't get sucked into the movie. You'll think, that's a kind of a cold movie. It didn't really grab me. So... These emotions, these fiery emotions particularly, are the ones that get the story of I going. The greed and the lust and all that, that's what's moving the whole story forward. So as long as the energy of those emotions are going into the story of I and churning it up, that's what absorbs our attention. That's what distracts us from the divine. That's what distracts us from the beloved. And that's what distracts us ultimately from the source from which all of it comes, because that's really what we're trying to get back to. So, one of the ways that people have tried to deal with this, religious people, spiritual people, has been through extreme asceticism. 
And if you uh, are reading through any kind of spiritual literature, you're going to run across people who went to all sorts of extremes trying to kill these emotions, to conquer them and kill them and get rid of them. So, you know, all kinds of starvation diets and oh, flagellation and, you know, whatnot. And there is a limited role for ascetic practices within mystical traditions. Ascetic practices, if you use them to bring out attachments that you didn't know you had so that you can look at them and see them, they can be very useful. But the wisest and greatest of the mystics have always warned against using ascetic practices to get rid of impure emotions, and especially extreme ones. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna that people who try to starve the body are fools because Krishna himself lives in the body, that the body is ultimately a manifestation of the divine. The Buddha went through six years of extreme ascetic practices and realized at the end that they weren't working. So he gave them up. He quit. He learned from tough experience. Meister Eckhart writes about people who are attached to vigils and penance and stuff like that. That becomes part of the story of I. You are the hero in the spiritual war against your own self and, you know, the conqueror and all that. And it just becomes a spiritual story of I, but it's nevertheless it's a story of I which you are starring in. So the wisest of the mystics have not recommended trying to get rid of these emotions. They recognize that they can be transformed because, as the Christian mystic John Scotus Aragina says, no vice is found which is not the shadow of some virtue. In other words, if you run across a vice, let's say greed, there's something about greed that points to a virtue. There's something about pride that points to a virtue. Something is contained in all these vices that is a gem, a jewel. If you throw out the vice, you throw out the virtue. And I know uh, many of you who've been around the center have already done practices inspired by the Tibetan tradition of transmuting negative emotions into wisdom energies. It's very powerful, but it's rather complicated. There's another bhakti way of transforming emotions, however, which is much simpler. And it begins with the premise that all emotions, even the negative ones, can be transformed into love and longing for the divine. And it works because all emotions, including the negative ones, are already rooted in love. They grow out of love. They are, in a certain sense, a distortion of love seen through the prism of delusion. And we can see this in our own experience. It's not a big mystery about it if we stop to consider it. For instance, when you get angry, You get angry because you've been deprived of something you love. 
If I come into your house and, uh, I don't know, I steal a favorite coffee mug, you're angry. If I come into your house and I steal that ugly pink terrine that your Aunt Tilly gave you for your anniversary that you stuck in a closet and haven't taken out in 20 years, you're not too angry. Because you didn't love that. You loved your little coffee mug, but you didn't love the terrine. If you're sad, why? It's because you lost something you love. If someone close to you dies, you have real deep sorrow. The closer they are to you, the deeper the sorrow. Lose a child, you have overwhelming sorrow. If Uncle Harry, who you saw a couple times when you were growing up, and every time you saw him, he yelled at you, you go to his funeral, but you know, you don't feel all that sad, do you? Maybe he was a real SOB. Maybe even kind of glad he's gone. So we aren't sad unless we lose something we love, right? Uh, we're not afraid unless we think we're going to lose something we love. If somebody comes along and threatens to burn down your house, that scares you. I kid Jennifer sometimes. She drives around with her pickup truck sometimes with, oh, I don't know, a yard debris or stuff she's going to take to Goodwill and she just hasn't gotten around to taking it. She's driving around for a few days and we go out someplace to eat and she leaves it in the parking lot and I say, aren't you afraid someone's going to come along and steal this? You know? <laughs> but no, see, she's not because she has no love for any of that. Uh, what else? Lust. It's interesting. Lust is always based on something we love, even if we don't love the person. And it's perfectly possible to lust after somebody maybe even you don't like very much. But what we're lusting after is the sexual pleasure. So there's still a love in there. It's the love of the pleasure. And it's not just sex. We can lust after chocolate, let's say. There are people who love chocolate, lust after chocolate. I've never heard of anybody lusting after lima beans. <laughs> uh, envy. We are envious of people who have what we would love to have. Gee, I wish I had a sports car like that. Nobody envies my car. Nobody says, oh, Joel, that's that wonderful old Datsun sitting in the driveway there. Wow. Isn't this true? And the more we love whatever it is, the stronger the emotion, the negative one. The angrier, the more fearful, the sadder, the stronger the love. So they're all rooted in love. And many people sense this connection. As we said before, they know that strong emotions are associated with suffering especially the negative ones. That's why they shut down. That's why they harden their hearts. If they love too much, then something's going to happen and they're going to suffer from one of these negative emotions and they don't want to feel that. So they think that the love is the problem. If I love something too much, then I'm going to suffer. But the love is not the problem. 
The problem is it's directed at objects that can never fulfill that love. They can never make us happy. They are impermanent. They are transitory. They are going to disintegrate. We're going to lose them one way or another. Even if we hang on to them until our death, we're going to lose them through our disappearance. So it's not the love itself, but it's where we direct it. And the way to transform all these negative emotions back to the love and longing that was at their root is that whenever a particular emotion arises, let's say you get angry, stay with the emotion. Don't try to get rid of the emotion. Please, that emotion contains that kernel of love. You stay with the emotion and you feel the anger and initially the anger is directed at, let's say, somebody who uh, criticized you at work. Okay, but then you stop and you say, wait a minute, what was wrong with them criticizing me at work? What is it that I love that they threatened? And I love to be admired at work. I love it when people like me, when they think I am competent, when they think I'm doing a good job. That's what I love. In this case, it's a self-image. So you shift the focus from the person that you think done you wrong to the original love that caused this anger to arise. Do you see what I mean? And then you feel that love and then you recognize, you know, no amount of hanging on to a self-image is ever going to make me happy. Someone's always going to come along and criticize it. Self-images are imaginary, they're fragile, they're transitory. And I think I'm going to be happy if everybody at work always admires me and no one ever criticizes me again. But that's impossible. So let me take this love and longing and turn it to the divine beloved. From which source true happiness can come. Or let me put it this way. It can draw us to it and to true happiness. You get the principle of this? Everybody understand what I'm talking about? This is why the founder of modern Hasidicism, the Baal Shem Tov, says about what happens when lust arises when someone's at prayer. A person who is distracted by sexual desire during worship should not seek to drive that desire from the mind, but rather should come to know that such desire itself is but a fallen spark from the world of love, which seeks to be uplifted in the ascent of prayer. The thought needs to be purified at its root so that the energy animating it can be redeemed and brought back to God. Now, this is interesting because this shows you the difference of a mystical approach to something like a prayer practice and an ordinary exoteric approach to prayer. If you're at prayer normally and you start having lustful thoughts and you go tell your pastor or your priest or whatever, they'll usually tell you that's bad, you shouldn't have those thoughts, you know, concentrate harder on your prayer, something like that, right? 
But the Baal Shem Tov comes along and says, no, no, no. Recognize that there's love at the root of this. And that's what he means. This, this has fallen from the world of love. And so we want to purify it at its root, not get rid of it. We want to get back to the love that was the cause of that and redirect it towards the divine. In fact, the more intense the negative emotion, the more energy is available to fuel your bhakti practice. During the 19th century in India, there was a very famous Hindu mystic called Ramakrishna, who was an external renunciate. I mean, he was a real pure guy. It's like Ramana Maharshi, you know. He's been dead, I don't know, more than 100 years or whatever, and there's no breath of scandal around him. You know, he didn't have a harem of women or any of that kind of stuff. And he was asked once by a disciple, how can I get rid of this lust? And he answered, why do you want to be free of lust? Rather, increase your lust. If you have a negative emotion, the more intense it is, the more love and longing is at the base of it. The more energy is there. The more fire. And this has been well known in bhakti traditions. It goes all the way back to the bhakti sutras. Here's what Narada says. Dedicate all your actions to God and direct all your passions, such as lust, anger, pride, and so forth, toward God. So, from a bhakti's point of view, this is how you purify the emotional heart. You don't get rid of anything. You don't throw anything out. You don't conquer, kill, stomp on, reject, neglect anything. You just transform it all. You transform it all. Everything is fuel for the fire. You just bring it in. You invite it in. You invite it in and you look at it and you get to the root of it, which is love, and you just simply, instead of directing it at that precious coffee mug or your favorite car or your self-image at work or whatever it is that you have loved, you just recognize it's not going to make me ultimately happy. There's nothing wrong with a wonderful coffee mug, but it isn't going to make me ultimately happy. And you direct it back to that source that can make you ultimately happy. Here's what Theophane says. The more our heart is purified, the more lively becomes our feeling for God. And when the heart is fully purified, then this feeling of warmth towards God takes fire. You know, when we're practicing here, especially in the beginning, and we read about some of these bhaktis just on fire with love and all that, and we wonder, well, why isn't this happening to me? Well, one of the reasons it's not happening to you is because the energy, the emotional energy is spread out all over the place. It's diffused through all your other projects and, and graspings and everything else you want. So if you want to have more of this sense of this concentrated, laser-like energy... That's what you have to do. You have to withdraw that energy from everything else and direct it towards God. And that's why he says, the more you purify your heart, the more you'll find there's more love and longing available. 
Here's what uh, Lolly Schwari says about her own personal experience with this. I entered the blazing furnace of the practice of yoga. Like ice, I melted in the fire of that love. My inner impurities burned away, leaving pure gold. Okay, let's try this practice of purifying the emotional heart. And we'll do three rounds. And the first round, I will guide you through working with one emotion. Then I'll stop guiding you, and then you on your own think up incidences from your own life that will arouse other of these negative emotions, and you practice yourself, seeing if you can identify the root and so forth. And we'll do that for the rest of this first round and then continue to do that during the second round. In other words, purposely generating these negative emotions and then purifying them. And then the third round, just do the practice of prayer in a heart and wait and see if some emotion arises that you can purify. So you'll wait and see what happens spontaneously rather than purposely generating them. Okay? All right. So we begin by concentrating on our word or mantra until attention is somewhat stable. Now try to hear your word or mantra being repeated in your heart.
let your attention sink down after it. So moving closer to try to hear it more clearly and more intimately. Let your word or mantra express whatever love and longing you genuinely feel. Now, if you've been able to sink into your heart, try to stay there, but let go of the word or the mantra, and recall some thing or person which you lost in the past and which made you feel very sad. Try to recall that incident as vividly as possible. And feel that sadness as strongly as possible.
Now try to remember how much you loved the object or person that you lost. And focus your attention on that feeling of love. See if you can feel that love even now. Now try to realize that any object or person, no matter how wonderful, is impermanent. And being impermanent, they can never bring you true abiding happiness. So now take that love and direct it towards the Divine Beloved. And if you have no concrete sense of a Divine Beloved, just direct it out to the universe, to the great mysterious source of everything. as though you were reaching a hand up to the stars. Let that love open your heart wider. Just let your heart be wide and open and filled with that loving and that longing.
And if you want to give that love and longing expression, start repeating your word or your mantra. And still remaining in your heart, let go of your word of mantra. And you try this on your own with another negative emotion that's been troubling you. Perhaps anger or envy or lust or fear. Recall some incident where you felt that emotion strongly. Identify the love that was at the root of it. What it was that you loved. Realize that Whatever it was, no matter how wonderful, it's impermanent and as such can never bring you happiness. And then redirect that love to the Divine Beloved. And let your word or your mantra express that love and that longing. If you'd like to follow our format, stop your player now and practice until you're familiar with these instructions. Then start your player again and continue with the program. So, um, again, it would be helpful to get a little bit of feedback. Were these exercises we did helpful? Were you able to 
identify the love and redirect it. Where any of you have difficulty with that, I'd like to hear all the range of reactions. I uh, was able to identify things that, that uh, I could see were uh, caused my love, and I redirected it. And um, I assume this is something you do over time. Yes, it is. And, and it grows slowly. Because I kind of was at that point, and never, you know. This is like your first day's driving, if you've never done this before. So you remember what it was like the first time your father, the driving instructor, took you out and you got behind the wheel? You were probably very awkward and you might even thought, oh, I'm never going to get the hang of this. So yes, you're right, it develops over time. But you were able to see that what you were feeling was rooted in love. That's the heart of it, the major insight we have to have to make this practice work. Yeah. So the big leap is um, transferring that longing or neediness to God mm-hmm. instead of looking to other people or situations. That was a big transfer. It is a big leap, you're right. And that comes from the second important insight that whatever the object of your Love was, other than the divine, it cannot make you ultimately happy, that it is ephemeral, it's transitory. So if we expect from that love to be made ultimately happy, we expect that happiness we're deriving from that to last, it isn't going to. So if we recognize that, you know, to let that go, it does mean you stop loving whatever you're loving. It's the letting go, the expectation that this is going to make me ultimately happy. I don't know if that's making any sense to you. Good, Joel. Yes. So that's like the, really, the felt realization that whatever it is or whoever it is will go. Thank you. Very well put. The felt realization, not the intellectual realization, but you feel it, the acknowledgement. And... When you can do that, then you can direct that longing for the ultimate happiness to the divine. Yeah. Along these lines, um, a lot of fear came up for me. It's, It's happened twice on the retreat, and it has to do with the fact that my partner is leaving this Thursday, and she'll be gone until the 31st. She's going to Rochester to meet the ricochet that... Ani had studied with, so part of her Tibetan Buddhist lineage. And so the fear that's come up is a couple of times that she will come back and say, you know, either I'm going to follow Rinpoche or, um, you know, I just have had a change of heart or whatever, and that it's done. And so um, working with that fear... It's interesting because it's like going to the heart center and just letting all that fear fully in and then letting it, recognizing that that fear is my deep love for 
a number of things. One is my partner, yourself. One is the security and comfort of my life the way I know it. And just the predictability of the flow of life the way I know it. All those things. So, letting that love just flow into the divine and liberate. And what was left was a sincere wish that my partner be happy. Oh. And no matter what, you know, that, mm-hmm. that moment, uh, the fear could arise and probably will again, but, you know, at that moment, that's what was there. That is very interesting, and that's a wonderful uh, example of how transformative this practice is. Because all those things that you mentioned, and I'm sure there are more, but, you know, the love of the security, the comfort, all those things, it's not simple. It's a whole enchilada of happiness. And when we demand, especially another human being, be that for us, we're distorting the true love that we could have for each other as human beings. Because we're demanding something of them impossible. It may not, you know, be uh, disastrous right away, and it may not even be disastrous at all, but it'll always create a little distortion in the relationship. And part of that distortion is you can't genuinely and completely wish for that other person to be happy because you've set parameters. You can wish for them to be happy with you, (laughs) but... You can't let them go completely, you see. You can't really give them that freedom to say, okay, whatever you need to do to be happy, I wish you well. Because you're attached. That's the attachment. Your your hooks are in them. And, you know, sometimes people can dance a long time with their hooks in each other, and as long as they don't pull too hard, it's not too painful. And let's face it, most relationships are that way. And it's a question of, you know how gingerly we dance with each other so we don't hurt each other. But true freedom is being willing to completely let go. And then, look what happens. It's true selfless love. That's a moment of pure, true selfless love. So it's a funny thing. This withdrawing the hope that another person will make me happy gives me the freedom to wish completely for their happiness, which means gives me the freedom to love them completely, unselflessly, with no strings attached. And you just described a concrete instance of that beautifully. Okay. As bhaktis, not only do we need to purify our emotional responses to situations, but we also need to purify our motivations for taking action. And here's what Anandamayama says about this. In the morning, as soon as you wake up, pray, Lord, accept as thy service everything I shall do today. At night again, before falling asleep, pray. In self-surrender, I bow to thee, placing my head at thy holy feet. Try to spend the whole day in this spirit. 
So what she's advising is a shift in motivation here, that to make the motivation of all of our life serving the beloved. Now, this does not necessarily mean running off and joining the Peace Corps or the Sisters of Charity and serving the poorest of the poor, although it could mean that. Mother Teresa of Calcutta got that call to go do that. It's important to notice, I think, that she got a call to do it. It wasn't some impulse of her ego. And you might get a call to go do that. But from a spiritual point of view, transforming the motivation involves something much simpler. As usual, that doesn't make it easier, but it is simpler. And I think Brother Lawrence, who's a great Christian mystic, sums this up most succinctly. And here's what he says. Our sanctification depends not on changing our works, but on doing for God what we would normally do for ourselves. So unless you're doing something really harmful, what you're actually doing doesn't really matter. That's not what's important spiritually. What's important is why you're doing it. So this is something you can begin to practice right here on retreat with the chores you have, little tasks around here. What would it mean to think of them in terms of, oh, all these little acts that I do, the chopping the vegetables, the washing the dishes, the cleaning the toilets at the end of the retreat, whatever it is you've signed up for, if I did them as service to my beloved, Supposing you were madly in love with someone and they went out of town and they asked you to come and stay in their apartment for the week. And you came there and you looked around and it was a little dirty and they'd left in a rush and there were some dishes left in the, in the sink. And you thought, oh, I'll clean this place up for them. And you would do it joyfully. You'd love to do it. It wouldn't be a burden. It wouldn't be, oh God, look at the pile of dishes there. <laughs> it would change everything about your relationship to the task. But the task would not change at all. You see what he's driving at here? It's something very simple. You can start practicing here, and it's a good place to start practicing. We have nice, simple, little menial chores. And then you can extend that to the work you do back in the world. Whether you work outside your home or inside your home, by the way. You can extend it to the chores around the house that you have to do. And then if you have a job, 9 to 5 kind of job, when you go to work. Oh, everything is service to my beloved. Here's what uh, Theophane advises in terms of work. Whatever your occupation, great or small, reflect that it is the omnipresent Lord himself 
who orders you to perform it, and who watches to see how you are carrying it out. If you keep this thought constantly in mind, you will fulfill attentively all the duties assigned to you, and at the same time you will remember the Lord. So he's recommending using an imaginative device here. And the fact that you're using a very concrete image like this can be extremely helpful as long as you, again, recognize that this image is a manifestation. It's not the ultimate thing. It's like a mask. It's like a drawing that someone does that you recognize, oh, here's a drawing of my lover. But it's not your lover, it's a drawing of your lover. But the drawing of your lover can evoke love and longing and all those things, all those tender feelings you have. Another example might be having a dream of God. You know, if you dream of God, or people who do dream of God, they have to dream of some image. Formless God can't appear in a dream. Even if it's a presence, that's a very subtle form, but it's some sort of form. But if you dreamt that a elderly gentleman with the classic stereotypical big beard sitting on a throne in the clouds with sunbeams, you know, emanating from all around, said to you, Clavon, I want you to go on a pilgrimage to Lone Pine, California. If I were you anyway, I would go. I would wake up and I would say, that was God talking to me, and I should go to Lone Pine, California. But you know that God doesn't look like an old man with a classic beard. You know what the dream is doing. The dream is creating an image in order to communicate to you. So Theophane doesn't mean that he thinks that God is sitting in the sky looking down on you with a great beard. But he's giving you a concrete image that you can use to remind yourself the truth of what's going on when you are performing any kind of task or chore. It's a double truth. It's a truth for you as a bhakti if you are animated by this love and longing for the beloved. It also happens to be a truth of the universe whether you know it or not because whatever you're doing is in service to the beloved, whatever you are doing. That's why Rabia, a great Sufi, says, even the sight of my eyes is service at your feet. Because the only way God can see anything is through your eyes. God doesn't have eyes, or let me put it this way, God has eyes. All the eyes in the world are God's eyes. God does have eyes apart from those eyes. And the same applies to the ears and the senses, the touch, the fingers. All of it. This is how God knows God. By looking through your eyes, hearing through your ears and all that. Wow, what I can do, I can't believe it. Amazing, astonishing. So don't be scared off by this God talk in bhakti literature. The more concrete you can make this stuff, the better. It's serving you. 
It's not meant to be theology here. Now, there are other uh, religious people who take it as theology, and that's one of the problems with exoteric religion. The problem with exoteric religion is not that it makes use of images of all sorts, images in the mind, idols, uh, mental images, conceptual images, in various kinds of doctrines and whatnot. It's that it takes them to be the ultimate reality. It takes the mask for the face. It takes the drawing for the person. That's the error of exotericism. It's not the creation of the images, of the forms. The forms are all actually divine. The trouble is they're all equally divine. Diaphane goes on to talk about relationships with people, how you can transform relationships with other people into service of the beloved. Every visitor or every person we meet should be welcomed as a messenger from God. The first question we should always ask is this, what does the Lord wish me to do with or for this person? We should receive everyone as though they were the image of God, reverencing them and ready to help them all we can. You know, when I used to work at the Bodhi Tree bookstore, it was in the middle of West Hollywood, and it's kind of a wild place, and people dressed in all sorts of different costumes. It's the beginning of punk and all those things, and kids would come in with spiked blue and pink hair and razor blades dripping from their ears and stuff like that. <laughs> Some straight people in suits and jackets, everything. The whole array. And... I would look around, it was amazing. It was like God kept showing up in all these different costumes. I was like at a wonderful masquerade ball, you know, and all the different attitudes, like playing roles. And I was there to serve everybody, see, I was a clerk. And they'd play their parts so well, you know. Even the ones that were impatient in a rush and nothing was going right, I'd say, wow, what a performance. Academy Award time. <laughs> So, if you are a true bhakti, you take this as play. And don't be afraid to use these images because they all serve to remind us of what is the truth of what's going on. That's their function. This applies, this business of service, even to taking care of your own body. And the trick is to recognize that your body is not yours. It belongs to the beloved. It wasn't given to you for your use. It was given to you for the beloved's use. And the use of it is for a divine self-disclosure. And then again, there are all sorts of imaginative tricks you can use to remind yourself of this fact. The one I like, I got from uh, Francis of Assisi who would refer to his body as Brother Donkey. Everything to him was a living aspect of the divine. Brother Sun, Sister Moon, he wrote beautiful poetry about that. And included in that was Brother Donkey. And at the end of his life, he even apologized to Brother Donkey and asked his forgiveness because he treated him rather hard. 
So we can really change our relationships with everything around us through acts of imagination inspired by love. And whatever we think of what's going on around us is all imagination anyway. You know, one of the problems with secular people is they think all this stuff is imaginary, all these spiritual people are making it all up, it's all in their heads, and they think what they imagine is the truth. Atoms and molecules and all that stuff is just all imaginary. I read an article uh, not too long ago describing two kinds of tours that go down the river that runs through the Grand Canyon. These are like three-day tours. They're like camping out tours, sleeping under the stars, and, you know, they hire a, a guide and a cook that cooks for them and whatnot. And one is run by a geologist, and he takes people down through the Grand Canyon. And it's a wonderful setting for an outdoor classroom on the history of geology, because you can see the layers, you know, here was the Paleolithic Age, it's all limestone, and the next one up is, I don't know, swamps, and then you can see where once it was all underwater, covered by sea, you can see seashells and, you know, all this stuff, for the, the millions of years of the Earth's history. So they go down, right? And then there's another tour that goes down, and it's conducted by a fundamentalist preacher. And for him, the Earth is 6,000 years old, and... What they see is evidence of the flood. You see the seashells, that shows you Noah's flood and all this stuff. So they're looking at the same thing and each is projecting uh, their own imaginary worlds on the same environment. I personally prefer the geological imaginary one. It's more satisfying to my intellect, but it doesn't mean it's any less imaginary. So don't be afraid of the imagination. Only be afraid if you start to believe it. Okay? And so if we think of taking care of our body and all the things we do, all as service to God, then we transform it all into acts of love. Here's the way the Hasidic master, Menachem Nahum, describes this. Corporal things, eating, drinking, and the rest of human needs if you do them just for the sake of fulfilling your desires, have no life. But if you raise up the eating, drinking, and other needs to God by your good intentions, then you fulfill the proverb, know him in all your ways, and all your deeds are for the sake of heaven. That's beautiful. Bhakti approach. So, to sum this up, Ramana Maharshi was once asked, what is the end of the path of devotion? And here's his reply. It is to learn the truth that all one's actions performed with unselfish devotion, with the aid of the three purified instruments of body, speech, and mind, in the capacity of the servant of the Lord, become the Lord's actions and to stand forth free from the sense of I and mine. So that's a wonderful description of how the path of bhakti works and these processes of purification of emotions, of motivation, things like that.
So, we're going to continue doing prayer in the heart. And at the first level, when just distracting thoughts arise, random distracting thoughts, then you concentrate on your mantra, your word, just ignore them. Try to hear the mantra in your heart, sink attention after it. And when you're in the heart, or anytime you're doing the practice, if strong negative emotions arise, then practice purifying them at the root, identifying the love that is at the root of it, and redirecting that love to the divine beloved. And use your mantra, your word, to express that, to express that love and that longing. And the more you bring in the liberated energies of other emotions, the more powerful that love and longing will become. Even if you find you have resistance to the practice, note that you can purify that resistance. At the root of that resistance is some love. It may be the love of being home in front of a TV with a glass of beer. No, that's it. You might say, what am I doing? Why did I come on this retreat? I just wish I was home watching some stupid escapist entertainment. That's love. That's a form of love. So you recognize that. That's what you think is going to make you happy. And you say, well, is that really going to make me happy? Well, no, it's not going to bring me lasting, abiding happiness. And you take that and you put it into the practice. So there's nothing you cannot transform in this practice. Okay. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you're thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and practices.